I'm gonna call the police. Police? Bah! Nosy meddlers! It so happens I have mail-order degrees in murderology and murderonomy. Zoidberg is a foot! Unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online, somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome all to the this week's Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, I'll be your ringmaster this week, David Grubbs. Uh, with me this week, uh, like all the other ones, is Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? If you're the ringmaster, am I like an acrobat or a clown or what? I, I think maybe you're more like a trained lion. I see. I think that would be kind of neat. Does, does that make Gilmore the lion tamer? Um, not real sure. What do you want to be, Nathan? Uh, I'm feeling like a human cannonball lately, so. <laughs> awesome. All right, so so the, the Christian Humanist Podcast Circus is well underway, and we definitely do have to get underway quickly this week, sir, uh, uh, because uh, we got lots going on. Um, there has been a, just, well, for us, a, a male avalanche. To be fair, um, most of it comes from superfan uh, Sam Mulberry. Yeah, I love Sam. <laughs> um, so, uh, any anybody want to summarize that for us? Go ahead, Michael. Oh God, I don't remember. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sent oh, us huh. a uh, very long email dealing with a lot of the stuff we talked about last week with the sports episode, and mm. we're not going to address that on the podcast itself. And instead, I believe David and Nathan are going to write two posts about it. Um, right. Later on this David's week. going to write a post about free will and literature that's going to go mm-hmm. live Thursday, and I'm going to be writing one about statistics and the metaphysics of narrative, uh, which is already over my own head on Friday. <laughs> it, it's just a bunch of uh, gobbledygook. No, um, no, 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 no. I think I, th- I think it's it's really really interesting stuff, and and, then, and I thank Sam for giving us things to write about because it's hard to blog. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, anyway, uh, the second email he sent was uh, he asked he asked whether any of us do any creative writing in in addition to the the critical work we ostensibly do. And uh, I'll let you guys answer first, and then I'll answer. All right. Well, I I am working, and I mean I use that phrase with uh, great irony because I I haven't opened the file in probably a year and a half. But I am working on a novel right now. Uh, with King Saul from 1 Samuel as the protagonist. Uh, And it's one of those things that grew out of my own teaching. Uh, I taught a course on Hebrew Bible and literature over at UGA, and we always did the uh, 1 and 2 Samuel narratives. Uh, I had also taught it that year in church. So in 11 months, I had taught 1 Samuel three different times. Uh, So I came to realize as I taught it those three times that I actually like Saul better than I like David. Uh, which is probably a sin and I'm probably going to go to purgatory for that. But uh, (laughs) 
you know, one of the things that I thought might be interesting would to be would be to do a novel where the interiority was all Saul's and David was entirely exterior. Uh, <laughs> so I've been working on that, you know, for a couple years. Coming you soon know. to Christian bookstores near you. Yeah, I doubt very many Christian bookstores are going to pick it up. I, it's one of those things I don't think the I, I don't hold up much hope for its publication because it's probably going to be too religious for the mainstream and too risky for the religious presses. So I'm writing it basically as my own thought experiment. Maybe someone will pick it up. Maybe not. David, do you do any creative writing? Oh, Lordy. Um, I often characterize myself as a frustrated creative writer. Um, my head is full of stories it's full of protagonists that are never going to find their way onto a page. Uh, every time I've started to make a story, uh, I, I get a few pages in and, and feel like, I, well, I haven't done enough thinking yet. I haven't done enough planning yet. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of confirmed that, that whole, uh, you know, literary critics are the people who wish they were novelists sort of stereotype that's yeah that that's me but sometimes it gets really frustrating because my head is full of i think really interesting protagonists who demand to have their story written and uh they had just have the the misfortune of having found the you know having found the wrong uh amanuensis so yeah we'll see maybe one day when i have time well, I uh, I try to write short stories. I've got one I finished. It's a kind of a magical realism piece uh, called the the Miracle Sludge, and then I have one I'm working on called Foghorn Leghorn at the End of the World, which is a uh, academic satire. And then I write light verse, which I'm actually I'm sending some pieces to the Saturday Evening Post this afternoon. I had no idea the Saturday Evening Post was still around, but I was looking for a place that would publish light either. verse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that'll be a good line on my CV, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, actually, now, the, the reaction. Ask, the the Foghorn Leghorn is that a reference to any particular professor at our shared school? It is. Yes. Okay, I thought it was. It would be immediately. It'll, it'll be immediately apparent to anyone who who knows that department. I had a feeling. It also, I, I think, vies in my mind for one of the, like the top ten best titles ever. I try to start with the title. Yeah. Which uh. may be why I can't get the Miracle Sludge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Sam also sent a third email making sure that we were going to talk about uh, the person he calls the world's most famous mystery fiction writer uh, Jessica Fletcher which is a reference to Murder, She Wrote and uh, actually we had planned on talking about Murder, She Wrote even though I've never seen the show um, yeah I, I was I was a huge fan uh, as a kid of, of all of those, you know, almost, almost, you know, half genteel kinds of murder mystery, you know, shows. So you so. and apparently Mrs. Mulberry, <laughs> we also well, got a, uh, we, we, we also got a fourth email from my friend, uh, forward Seuss, who, uh, I, we're, we're also going to answer that email on the blog next week. So forward, if you just hang in there and uh, keep reading right. the blog, You'll, uh, I'll, I'll be writing that one forward, so I am sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> also, I've gotten out, uh, we, we have three blog responses to uh, emails, and, and somehow I didn't end up having to write one, so thank God for that. 
<laughs> David, let's uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said at the end of the the show the show last week, I, I'm one of my big interests is, uh, in literature is is genre fiction in general. The uh, the the genres that generally don't get a lot of respect. Um, we've talked about horror, we've talked about science fiction and fantasy, but we haven't talked about uh, a genre that is uh, near and dear, perhaps in some ways nearest and dearest uh, to my heart, which is uh, the mystery, uh, detective fiction. And it's uh, it's a pretty distinctive genre, it's a hugely popular genre, not just uh, – in literature, which you know you can find pages and pages of it at your local Barnes and Noble or whatever bookstore you happen to haunt, um, but it's all over television. It's all over you know your video store. Um, it, this is this it's it's a w- very well recognized pattern of story that uh, apparently audiences can take any amount of <laughs> and still be interested in more of it. So. For that reason, I think it's worth talking about because it's definitely it's definitely a part of humanities. It's a of the humanities. It's a kind of storytelling that uh, that our culture uh, apparently can't do without, and so we need to talk about it. Um, now, I've got to confess, this is because this is such a personal interest of mine. It's kind of hard to see around it. Um, I've been a mystery fan for as long as I can remember, and I can't imagine life without them or even life with them only in moderation. So uh, I may be projecting my experience. Um, But what about you, Dolan? Do you have a taste for detection? And what do you enjoy that's reckoned part of the genre? Uh, How about you, Michael? Well, I'm not a huge fan. I don't dislike mystery. I probably like it more than the other genres we've been talking about. And when I was a kid, I really loved uh, Donald Sobel's Encyclopedia Brown series. Yes. And I read The Boxcar Children and The Bobsy mm-hmm. Twins and Cam Jansen and a bunch of other yep. books like that. But I've never mm-hmm. read a single page of the uh, Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. Oh. Encyclopedia Brown was my favorite. It was really the only one where I could ever get the answer before the end of the story. I was always very proud of myself. A few years ago, by the way, I found a copy of Donald Sobel's Two Minute Mysteries, which is basically Encyclopedia Brown for slightly older readers. Um, I found that for like a dollar at Borders, and I had a uh, great deal of fun going through them all. Yeah, th- those are those are just great. But in general, I don't read very many mysteries anymore, not unless they overlap with uh, what you might call literary fiction. Um, and we'll be talking about some authors that that do intersect those two genres. And I've probably led, read less genre fiction in general than either of you, and that's mostly because I'm insecure about how much literary fiction I've read and feel the need to read that and only that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you have enough. it, folks. Uh, what about you, Nathan? Well, honestly, I've I've probably read even less mystery fiction than Michael has. Uh, I, I'm, I'm you always got to one up me, don't you, Nathan? <laughs> Even if he's one downing you? Well, I mean, <laughs> since you usually spend the week before every episode insulting me on Facebook, I figure on the air I can get a couple shots in. <laughs> nice. Anyway, in, in-house bickering, in-house bickering. Uh, I mean, when I read sort of casually, you know, I tend to read science fiction novels. I tend to read uh, magazines, quite frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the detective fiction I've taken in, honestly, has been through movies and television. Uh, so, you know, I've read some of the Sherlock Holmes stories. I've read the Ed- Edgar Allan Poe 
uh, a lot of the Edgar Allan Poe uh, investigation stories, uh, but not a whole lot of mystery fiction in my own background. So I'll be interested in hearing what you guys have to say about these sorts of things. Well, they, we're gonna be we're gonna be bringing up TV, so there's you know it's not like you guys are gonna, not gonna have anything to talk about. Lowbrow. Yeah, it's not well. Detection has been lowbrow for as long as it's existed. So, you know, right. it's not like Let's being just on keep TV. Keep the chronology out of this. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Um, the first book that I ever read of uh, of my own will and enjoyed for the love of it was a Bobsy Twin mystery called "The Bobsy Twins at Pilgrim Rock," in which they go to uh, well, the, they go to the Massachusetts Bay Colony as you know, little children on on tour, and there there are mysteries, and someone's pretending to be a ghost, which it turns out not to be a ghost. It's like smugglers or something. I don't remember. But that was uh, that was the first book without pictures on every page and multiple chapters that I remember loving. And so just about every book from about seven years old when I read that until about 10, just about every book that I read was a mystery in some form or other. Um, Encyclopedia Brown, Bobsy Twins, Hardy Boys, uh, some series that, that died out in the 1950s, but they still had them in, in our church library. And so I found them. Um, yeah, got got hooked on that, and then my grandmother got me hooked on Agatha Christie and Rex Stout and Ellery Queen, and also on the television shows. So I was watching Murder She Wrote, and uh, oh gosh, Murder She Wrote, and the Father Dowling mysteries, and Perry Mason. And anyway, so this this is something that I've loved all my life, um, and you guys are going to have to rein me in because I'm going to just. I'm in danger of geeking out interminably at any moment in this show. <laughs> so I'll stop there. <laughs> um, now, even though mystery uh, as a distinct genre is a fairly recent innovation, it's not completely rootless. I mean, as long as there have been laws and people, there have been people breaking laws and someone trying to figure out who did it, right? Um, so uh, in our conversation before this show, Nathan, uh you said that some of the concerns that are kind of brought up in mystery fiction are also present in uh, the Torah and in the the Hebrew traditional Hebrew commentary on the Torah. Um, what kinds of crime detection do we find there? All right. Well, first of all, I mean, as far as uh, stories that have to do with detection, I mean, there's one of them in the Greek version of Daniel and mm -hmm. just a one minute version of the, the textual criticism of this Our oldest versions of, the book of Daniel come in one version that is a mix of Hebrew and Aramaic, another one that is in Greek. This story is in the Greek version. It's not the version that made it into the Protestant Bible, and I'm pretty sure not into Catholic Bibles either. I think it's pretty much a museum piece. Uh, I'm not 100% on that. David, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I but, think I think it is in the, in the Catholic Bible. Okay, I'll, all right. I, I, I would I have to dig into my Vulgate on a shelf over here, but... But, All right. Yeah. Well, it, it's one of those things I, you know, I, I never can remember which bits are in which Bibles. Yeah. Once we get to that, you know, multiple versions of Daniel stuff. But at any rate, there's a story about a woman named Susanna. Uh, she is a woman, you know, according to the NRSV translation, which is what I use, who is a woman of refinement and great beauty. 
she is accused of adultery by two eyewitnesses, which, of course, according to the law, uh, is enough to prosecute someone for a crime in the mm. law of Moses. Uh, so Daniel, uh, we know about Daniel, the brave resistor of Babylonian hegemony. Uh, some of <laughs> us are even aware of Daniel, the visionary apocalyptic prophet. Uh, what Susanna gives us is, or what the Greek version of Daniel, you know, the book of Susanna, uh, gives us is Daniel, the bad cop. Uh, he takes <laughs> these two witnesses. He makes sure that they are far apart from each other. And he asked the first one, uh, what kind of tree were they messing around under when you saw them? And he says, the mastic tree. And he goes to the other one and he says, all right, what kind of tree were they messing around under when you caught them messing around under the tree? And he says, the oak tree. And, you know, problem solved or case closed. Uh, I believe the accusers are executed as false witnesses and the book comes to a close. Now, hmm. that, you know, that's the closest thing to detective fiction you're going to find in the Old Testament. I actually did a paper uh, in seminary about uh, homicide law in the Torah and in the Talmud, the, the rabbinic comment commentary that David referred to. Mm -hmm. And one of the very interesting things is that as the law of Moses moves from Exodus through Leviticus and Numbers into Deuteronomy, you've got a shift geographically from a nomadic tribal law system to an urban law system that they're going to need when they get into Canaan. And so, you know, by the time you get to Deuteronomy, you have largely drifted away from the Lex Talionis, uh, the law of the claw, where if I get murdered, then it's my brother's responsibility to kill the murderer. And you've moved more towards a system where if a crime happens, the accused and the witnesses and the victim, if the victim isn't a murder victim, obviously murder victims present problems of their own, uh, <laughs> are brought before the elders of the city. And the elders of the city actually hold a trial of sorts for the accused. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, if you look carefully at the law of Moses, you've got uh, the ten that they like to put up in courthouses, which are very absolute in character. Uh, but many of the other 613 laws are case law. So in other words, they make distinctions between if a person kills someone else with an open hand versus mm -hmm. with a metal object lying in wait versus, you know, caught in the act of adultery, you know, breaking into someone's house versus out in the street. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's this very fine distinction, which gets even finer when you get into the Talmud between kinds of, of crime. So, you know, at least in the Jewish tradition, uh, there's a very, very strong tradition of thinking hard about the nature of the crime of homicide. Hmm. And of, uh, considering motives and methods and yes uh, yes yeah all of those things are implied in the law of moses and especially in the talmud yeah the, there's also a story uh nathan when you were talking about susanna you reminded me of the other bit of daniel apocrypha which is the story of bell and the dragon ah yes when uh there's this idol bell that the the babylonians worship and they offer it food, and the food is gone in the morning, so they claim Bell ate it. And uh, this is actually a bit more Scooby-Doo than Sherlock Holmes, but uh, uh, Daniel puts, uh, I believe, ashes or flour or something out on the floor so that the next morning it's revealed that there are all footprints, and the priests of the idol have been the ones eating the food. And uh, 
you know, the monster is unmasked and it's old Mr. Feeney who would have gotten away for it were it not for that meddling Hebrew prophet. Right. Um, now, that's, uh, that's the Hebrew Bible. Um, in the intervening years, I don't know a whole lot about, you know, crime and punishment in, uh, in the classical world, uh, the Greeks and Romans. Um, I'm had, a medievalist. It, it had a lot to do with torture. <laughs> that yeah, that okay. was, in their minds, the most reliable way to extract a extract the truth from the accused. Right. No, no, uh, no sort of finely honed uh, cross-examination Daniel style. Um, now, when you get to the Middle Ages, you get things like trial by combat when you find out who's, who's the guilty party because uh, uh, they're the one that dies in the duel. And, and obviously the guy that won is, is, has the right on his side. Um, trial by ordeal. If you're a witch, you sink. If you float, then – or if you're not a witch, you sink. If you are a witch, you float, which means if you die, then you are And you're innocent. not a duck. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um absurdities like that um let's see there's a little bit in hamlet where hamlet puts on a play in order to catch out his murderer uncle um you know one of the first examples of of kind of doing a psychological recreation of the crime in order to get some kind of reaction out of uh out of a suspect um but the play is hardly about that, so I wouldn't I wouldn't call Hamlet a murder mystery per se. Um, there's some Elizabethan pamphlets about crime. I think Robert Greene did some about uh, you know sort of urban con men. Uh, Anthony Munday did a, a fun little pamphlet about gruesome murders in his time. Um, but then we fast forward to the uh, uh, late 1700s, and we end up with the Gothic novel. And just real quickly, um, Anne Radcliffe's version of the Gothic, which uh, we we talked about Gothic in the horror episode, but we focused on Horace Walpole's, in which the supernatural is real, the ghosts are real, it's actually scary. In Anne Radcliffe's version, um, all of those all of those horrors are explained away in a very Scooby Doo Scott Scooby Doo style. It's, it's they're either mistakes or um, you it's know, the actually, curator. Yes, yeah, direct, you know, direct fraud kind of things. You know, it was the ventriloquist who did it. Um and and so some of the some of the uh trying to explain the mysteries with rationality, uh, I would trace to, to you know, kind of a, Re- a Radcliffe brand of gothic. Um but fast fast forwarding yet still, um unlike most genres that we've discussed in past episodes, I think we can actually go all the way up to the Americas and claim the story of detection as an American invention. Well, Michael, you're an Americanist, so uh, what is Poe trying to accomplish when he writes tales of ratiocination? I believe that's how you pronounce that. I cannot pronounce that word, so we're just going to call them tales of detection. But yes, usually they're called tales of (laughs) R-A-T-I-O-C-I-N-A-T-I-O-N. And typically when you're talking about those stories. You're talking about uh, three of them. You're talking about Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Purloin Letter, and The Mystery of Marie Rouget. And uh, Rue Morgue comes first and really sets the paradigm for most all detection fiction since then. 
Um, mm. th- there's a bizarre crime, and the police can't s- solve it, and so in comes the super genius, Monsieur Auguste Dupin, who makes a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, speaking in that pretentious French voice. Anyway, he makes a series of logical leaps, and eventually he arrives at the completely irrational answer, and I won't spoil what that is for those of you who haven't read it. Um, Poe also creates another staple of the genre. Dupin, at one point, looks at his buddy and tells him exactly what he's thinking, and his mm. buddy is, of course, shocked, and Dupin goes through this complicated series of thoughts that led him there, and of course he's right. Um, I'm really just agreeing here with a scholar called John Irwin, but I would argue that Poe's detective stories aren't as locked into rationalism as some of their heirs, um, especially the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, rather, uh, Poe's stories operate on what Irwin calls intuitive science, which is to say that Dupin is logical, except that he gets something akin to revelation that allows him to make seeming leaps of logic and so there's a mystic dimension to those stories that's missing i think in a lot of later detective mm. fiction although so it resurfaces in a lot of tv detective dramas where they trust their gut that's yeah true. the moment of intuition that they, they just you know can't ignore it's also worth noting that the mystery of marie rouget ends before we learn who killed the title character so poe's really just three stories into the genre before he breaks all the conventions that he himself set <laughs> and uh, huh. i I, ha- I should say that that story is very long and incredibly boring and a lack of an ending is really frustrating i do not recommend it to anyone and that i suspect poe didn't leave it off to make a statement i think he just got in a rut and decided to publish it anyway that's pretty much how poe works and uh, one more thing about Poe, he subverts the genre again with a story called The Man of the Crowd. Our unnamed narrator submits himself to that so-called intuitive science. He leaps to some rather wild conclusions about this stranger he sees on the streets of London, and he decides <laughs> to follow him all over the city. And so the idea behind the story is probably more interesting than the execution, um, but I find that to be the case with most of Poe's work, and that's, uh, <laughs> that's just how I feel about Poe. Side, side. Um, and, you know, you can do with this what you will, but do you see any kind of relationship between Poe's stories of crimes being solved and his stories of crimes being committed? Well, sh- sure, you can You can see kind of a dualism there, right? Uh, the, the stories of the crimes being committed, the ones we talked about in the horror episode, are about the kind of untamable side of humanity and the tales of uh, that word I can't pronounce – <laughs> uh, are more about controlling that. So something terrible happens in a room morgue, and I mean, it, it's it's really grotesque, but Monsieur Dupin can make sense of it all. Hmm. Yeah, because I, I, I know that one of one of my go, well, some of my go-to texts for, for teaching uh, composition when it's literature-based are post stories of of, of Gruesome murders being accomplished, but also, uh, you know, particularly the the purloined letter, and I, I think they're very interesting, kind of uh, peeks at a particular a particular kind of uh, of of psychology, which uh, which is very interesting because I, I I don't really know what kinds of sources Poe might have had for how to imagine what um, how how the human mind works. Um, so I, I I always have have just kind of assumed that he's he's come up with these things on his own, which is to me even makes what he accomplished more amazing, even if you don't think the execution of it is that awesome, Michael. Maybe so. 
Okay. Um, now, even though uh, du, uh, Auguste Dupin, yeah, anyway, is the first of his kind, um, he's certainly not the best known detective. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is, and we all uh, uh, we've all read him. Um, why is it that we remember Sherlock Holmes, but we don't remember Dupin? Um, is there any Dupin in Holmes? Well, the first question is much easier to answer, and I'm going to leave the second one to you and Nathan to answer. Um, there's a couple answers to why we remember Holmes and not Dupin. Um, number one, Poe published only three Dupin stories, and there are you know dozens and dozens involving Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Number two, Poe never achieved anything close to Doyle's popularity at least in his lifetime. So Dupin never became this huge cultural touchstone that Holmes did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because Holmes fits in with the Victorian era much better than Dupin does in the Romantic era. The Victorians were much more interested in that kind of cold logic than the Romantics were. And uh, finally, the Sherlock Holmes stories are much, much better written and more interesting than the Dupin stories. Okay. Well, what do you, what do you think, Nathan? I mean, uh, it, it's... It's interesting to me when we're, you know, reading, you know, especially if you've if you've never looked at Poe's stories and you come to them after a familiarity with Sherlock Holmes, uh, I see so many things that that seem that seem similar that sometimes I forget, you know, what what the differences might be. How do you think? Right. They, they I mean, especially it merges the room org. I mean, that's one of those stories that I. I did come to after Sherlock Holmes, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, uh, this is where Doyle must have gotten, you know, the idea of the, you know, the clue that is entirely obvious to the super genius, but that everyone else in the story misses. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, that sort of is the turn, you know, the, the typical turn of the de detective story. Uh, the Perline letter, I mean, it is, like Michael said, I mean, something much more romantic flavored in my mind uh because it has so much to do with uh evading the purely procedural and logical thought of the police and going mm -hmm. towards a more intuitive um i won't say anything more like that on that because i mean whatever word i use next is going to give away the ending uh, <laughs> uh but you know because it is a departure from uh the logical procedures, uh, it is much more of a romantic era story. Okay. Whereas we would say Holmes is, is much more emphatically Victorian. Uh, there is no more Victorian human being character, I guess, <laughs> than Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I mean, period. He is the great hero of that era. Yeah. Right. Him, him and, you know, he's the great hero. Dracula is the great villain. Hmm. Which, uh, which is why I, I think uh, I, I, I could I could name at least uh, I, I know of at least three novels, one uh, decent one, that actually put Sherlock Holmes and Dracula in the same story. Um, so yeah, I guess that they're they're kind of an, an irresistible pairing simply because they tower over <laughs> their their period. Um, Sherlock Holmes, uh, you know, he's he's super logical. He's uh, he's very rational. He's kind of a human Swiss Army knife of 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 competencies. Um, but I want to give a little bit of love to uh, uh, to his sidekick because I think one of the most profound contributions that Sir Arthur Conan, 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle made to the mystery genre was uh, Dr. Watson. Um, what does he bring to the story? I mean, DuPont had a sidekick, but uh, Nathan, I mean, is, is Watson just a sidekick? Well, I mean, I, you know, the way that I remember Watson is I remember him as the character with whom I could most identify uh, mm. because I am not very good at solving mystery stories as they're happening. Uh, I often find myself in the shoes of Watson saying, okay, I'm certain there's something here that Holmes is about to pick up on that I should have seen, but I missed entirely. Uh, so, I mean, you know, in the, in the Holmes stories that I read when I was younger, uh, I, I always felt that, you know, if I were going to insert myself into the story imaginatively, uh, it would be in the person of Watson. And I think that that's, you know, as a literary device, it's quite handy because if you've only got the super competent figure, uh, then you really are in the world of, you know, sheer rationality. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're there experiencing the frustrations of a Watson, uh, then there's also a, a pathos connection there. Uh, in addition to the logos of Holmes. Uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd say that that's the, and, you know, really, I mean, if you think about it, you know, that's one of the reasons why as irritating as Christopher O'Donnell is, uh, and it doesn't excuse <laughs> the existence of these movies, uh, but that's why Robin <laughs> is such an effective character in the Batman stories. Uh, even though I think the stories would be better without him, uh, is that, you know, again, he is the inexperienced, uh, not as competent as Bruce Rant Wayne. So there's a level of identification there. Now, both Watson and Robin, I mean, are completely committed to the ideologies of their super competent partners. You know, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not as if Watson says, you know, well, I think perhaps Holmes, you should be more intuitive. It's not as if Robin says, you know, maybe we should talk to the police about this first. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in both cases, uh, <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Uh, but yeah. in both cases, you know, it, it's a it's an entry point for the audience. I think. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think about. I mean, I, I don't know if how many uh, sort of screen adaptations of the Sherlock Holmes canon you guys have seen, but kind of the zero. Okay, well, the the classic ones are the the Basil Rathbone, Nigel, Nigel Bruce ones, in which you know Watson is depicted as this kind of bumbling comic relief moron. Yes. Um, but in in the stories, That's who I identify with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but when you re when you read the stories, he's he, I mean, he's he you know he's intelligent. He's a doctor. He packs heat, and very often he's the one who provides sympathy for uh, you know the people who come to Holmes in distress. But when Holmes is presented with a problem, he you know he turns into Mister Spock mode, and he has no empathy <laughs> to offer. And it, it's at that point that that Watson, you know, you know Watson becomes, you know, the human who is kind to these people who are victims, while while sh while the computer is off doing its job. Um, yeah, and I think you see that even more clearly in the TV show House, which is, I mean, very closely and very obviously based mm -hmm. on the Sherlock Holmes story. So you get House, who's this insufferable, mad, abusive genius. And he gets made human by his relationship with his best friend, Wilson slash Watson. Um, House is worse off than Holmes. 
but the relationship's similar. And unfortunately, and you can tell me if this is true of some of the writing about Holmes, uh, David, but unfortunately the writers of House have decided lately that the best route to take with House and Wilson is to have everyone believe that they're lovers. And I think that's a silly plot, and I, I think it's kind of philosophically distasteful because it suggests that men can't be close friends without being gay. And uh, I'm sure right. I'm sure similar theories exist about Holmes and Watson, right? Uh, not super popular ones. Um, mainly, I think, because it militates against the flavor of the characters in the stories themselves. Um, Sherlock Holmes is not interested in love. The only woman, uh, there's a story in which he, he meets a woman that he admires. And the reason why Irene he Adler, admires right? her, yes, Irene Adler, the reason why he admires her is because she outsmarts him. Um, and that's that's the only time in all of the stories that that Sherlock Holmes ever notices the person that he's interacting with as anything other than a, other than a problem of of crime and justice. He's oh, very concerned. He's very right. concerned about crime and justice. Very that's passionate interesting. About one it. of my early exposures to Holmes was a movie called Young Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if either of you ever took it in. Uh, but it basically tries to give an origin story for Holmes's detachment, you know, <laughs> in which uh, the young woman with whom he is passionately in love uh, falls victim to a, a British Osiris cult. And it's because of that, you know, broken attachment that he becomes the detached person that he is. I mean, it's not unlike uh, the the movie version of Casino Royale with James Bond. You know, it's <laughs> sort of giving an etiology for Bond's womanizing by saying that when he was a young agent, he was passionately in love, but because of his attachment, she ended up dying. That's really interesting because, I mean, I mean what do you guys think? Um, I mean, w one of the things that, that you mentioned, Michael, is the, the, the kind of the foregrounding of relationships in especially mystery television these days. Uh, I mean, do we think of the super is there is the only way that we can think of these super rational detective geniuses these days is as psychologically wounded and incomplete people yes basically okay. and uh, the three i watch are house which i i i think has gone downhill um i i watch bones and i watch mm -hmm. monk and all three of these um especially house and especially monk have yeah. have really psychologically damaged main characters who are nevertheless geniuses. Um, right. I, I will say Monk is still more or less about uh, uh, was it's it's off the air now, but it was it was always more or less about the uh, crime more more than the other two shows are. So you would you you would conceivably watch Monk to to solve the crime. I don't think anybody watches Bones because they care about the crimes that are being solved. They watch it between the relationships between the characters, uh, especially between Emily Deschanel and David Boreanaz, who play uh, respectively this kind of cold, rationalistic um, forensic anthropologist and a Catholic, intuitive uh, FBI agent. And they're clearly in love with each other, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's like G.K. Chesterton and Richard Dawkins formed a crime-fighting team. It, it is. It is like that, <laughs> except that one of them is a beautiful woman and the other is a beautiful, beautiful man. And, and so I think, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty clear that's why people watch Bones. And in fact, they lampshaded it um, a few weeks ago 
because uh, Deschanel's character wrote this novel about what she does, and all anybody cares about is the sexual relationship between her stand-in and Boreana's stand-in. So uh, the, the <laughs> people who write that show were very much aware of it. And the same goes with House. It used to be about the patient of the week, but nobody really cares about the patient of the week anymore. What they want to know is whether House is getting better, whether he's becoming a better person, whether Chase and Cameron are going to get back together, where House and Cuddy are ever going to be happy together, etc., 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 um, so it's, it's a weird move for the history of detective fiction because what you're really getting is a move away from the genre and into something else entirely, this kind of interpersonal soap opera. Right, it's mm-hmm. interesting. The same sort of thing goes on in the HBO series The Wire, and I won't get any, any specific details, but the, one of the main characters, uh, Jimmy McNulty, who is the, decidedly the Holmes figure in that series, or one of them. I, it, that series is so complex, it's hard to isolate any types. But uh, in Jimmy McNulty's character especially, there is always an inverse relationship between, or an in- inverse proportion between his effectiveness as a detective and his worth as a human being. Hmm. And I mean, it's interesting because there, there's one stretch in the series, and I mean, it's several episodes long, where uh, McNulty decides to lay back on being a detective and he basically settles down, starts living a happy domestic existence. And, you know, really the, and that is a tragic show all the way down to the bottom. But one of the great tragedies in that show is that a case comes up that brings Jimmy McNulty back into the world of being a detective and all of that happiness that he had built up for 10, 12, 15 episodes just disintegrates within three episodes. Mm. And, you know, even as you want him to solve this case and catch this guy, I mean, you are, you know, just weeping for the happiness that he could have had if he could only leave that side of him alone. So, I mean, that dynamic is definitely something that's part of the modern detective mythology. Hmm. The, you know, being, being kind of a, some, someone who still respects the rational, uh, myself, it, I don't. I don't think I'd realized until we started talking about that show the degree to which the mystery today is dominated by that uh, by that particular theme. But oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it totally is. Um, but it's 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 not like uh, you know TV writers in the you know in the first decade of the 21st century are the first people who've noticed this. I mean that. You know, as soon as Sherlock Holmes became the archetype, you know, kind of the archetypal detective, um, other detectives, you know, were were being invented in the, you know, in the early 20th century, especially uh, that were, you know, either either, uh, you know, continuations of the same type or answers to the same type. Sure. Um, I mean, on one level, it's almost as if they took Holmes, but then they reach back into Hawthorne's. Uh, birthmark and Rappuccini's daughter and said, let's bring those pathologies into this mm-hmm. kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, now, one particular one that I've got in mind, Michael, um, you've, you've said that you're a fan of uh, Father Brown. Um, I mean, can you play him off of Sherlock Holmes in this, uh, the, the way that we've been talking about the relation of, of mind and human now? Sure, the Father Brown mysteries are by G.K. Chesterton. And Nathan, I, ha- I have to know, do you feel like Father Brown is trying to sell you something? You know, honestly, I've never read Father Brown. I saw you guys mention those in the, the discussion before the show, and I, 
I didn't even know that Chesterton wrote detective stories, although that seems to be a a favorite pastime for Catholic intellectuals. <laughs> anyway, in the very first Father Brown mystery, you get this trifecta of Father Brown and the police detective, and I, I get to pronounce this in French too, um, Aristide Valentin, and then you get... <laughs> You get the criminal flambeau, and uh, Valentin uh, underestimates Father Brown, who nonetheless catches flambeau, and I think we've got the pattern down here. Uh, that's that's how you feel when you read it. You, you figure all the rest of the stories are going to be this wholly rational guy, Valentin, and he's going to continue to underestimate the religiously-minded Father Brown who's going to catch all the bad guys instead of the cops. And the problem is it doesn't work that way, and I'm going to reveal some spoilers here, so if... Uh, if you haven't read this and you don't want to know how it turns out, you should fast forward to the next couple minutes. Um, in the second Father Brown story, the very second one, Valentin is the criminal and he ends up killing himself pretty much directly because of his French rationalism. So religion triumphs supreme and Flumbo the criminal ends up repenting, converting, and becoming Father Brown's sidekick, which is not quite as... Um, facile as, as that description makes it sound. It's more or less believable. So... Um, <clears throat> Father Brown doesn't fit fit the mold of the detective as we think of the detective because he's remarkably well-adjusted. If he doesn't belong in the world he lives in, it's kind of a religious not belonging and not a, an eccentric not, not an eccentric outsider damaged not belonging. He's quiet. He becomes almost like wallpaper. People ignore him. They underestimate him. And then he pops out of nowhere and he solves the case. Um, it doesn't come via revelation, it should be said. He, he still operates on principles of logic, just the mm. way Holmes and Dupin do. But nevertheless, you get the feeling that his openness to religion somehow helps him to solve these crimes that these purely rational men can't solve. Those are, those are really great stories, and I recommend them to everyone, especially people who think that Chesterton's always trying to sell them something. <laughs> no um. names! Yeah. So, uh, sometimes on the air, the insults come, folks. Sometimes on the air. Oh, one, one it's really a friendly ends. back and forth, Nathan. <laughs> uh, one of those that I think is is uh, definitely worth mention is uh, the Hammer of God. Um, I won't I won't give away the the, the twist ending, but uh, uh, at one point, Father Brown is speaking to the uh, the criminal, telling him. What he what he did what what he had done in 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 what he thought was secret, and uh, the the criminal asks him, you know, how do you know this? Are you a devil? And Father Brown's answer is, uh, no, I'm a man, and therefore have all the devils in my heart. And uh, later uh, in 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 another story, he's explaining his his logical process. You know how does he uh, how does he solve crimes, and he does it by this kind of uh, uh, sort of I guess Keatsian how was it negative capability uh, um, where he 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 takes human sinfulness seriously, imagines if I was in this situation and I committed this crime, why would I commit it in this way? And then he sort of feels around the scene, and when he finds the person whose mind feels like his mind did when he imagined himself into the crime, that's his person. And it's this, it's this kind of very intuitive psychological process which is informed by 
well, his his knowledge of the dark, you know, that kind of the, the dark corners of the human soul, which he's learned, of course, as as a priest hearing confession. And uh, yeah, Ch- Chesterton's really interesting because it makes it makes detection about what goes on in human hearts, and not about um, you know logic problems that would have been just as intriguing if it had been about you know robots or chemicals or whatever. Um, now, from the beginning, uh, with Poe, it's it's already present in Poe at the beginning, and uh, certainly with Arthur Conan Doyle, um, the mystery genre has dramatized the relationship between justice and law, and you know we see this often uh, in the fictional detective's tendency to make light of raw, of law enforcement if. Uh, He's not involved with law enforcement, or as uh, as it you know occurred in the first episode of CSI when the CSI lab tech is making fun of the police detectives and their their inabilities to solve crimes. Um, what's up with this? You know, what why why this this tension between uh, between justice and between law, or between the people who find the truth and the people who whose job it is to enforce the law. I mean, what what is what is lying behind this tension? What do you think, Nathan? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in you know, as I've said, mainly movie and TV detective stories are my point of contact, and in those, this has sort of transmuted, if you will, into a preference for local law enforcement. So. Uh, on the TV show NCIS, of which Mary is a great fan, uh, so I watch along with her. Uh, the joke is always that the FBI are fumbling, bumbling idiots, and that hmm. you know NCIS, you know, who are basically your old school film noir, hard nosed cops. They're the ones who actually solve the case. And hmm. likewise on the Wire, it's always the uh, detective level street cops who are solving the case while the lieutenants and the majors and the police commissioner are entirely incompetent. So, you know, I, I think that first of all, the convention gets translated as you move forward into uh, television and movie detection. I, I think that this convention though, I mean, is a particularly modern, uh, I won't call it an anxiety, but it's a, it's a modern intuition uh, that, bureaucracy is something that is very distant from us and while it interferes mm-hmm. it is a largely unknowing bureaucracy you know in in some ways i mean you know detective fi- fiction for that reason is an inherently conservative genre uh because they are almost always critical and i mean critical i mean is a little bit too harsh they're almost always condescending towards uh, people with big ideas, people who are running big organizations, anything mm-hmm. big in a detective story is usually going to get things wrong. Uh, right. Michael, I mean, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, I, I did want to say Monk is almost exactly the same way as, as you describe uh, NCIS and, and The Wire as being. They even had an episode where the FBI was hired to come in and they used all this fancy equipment and they made fun of Monk and he, ended, of course, ended up solving the case with nothing other than his <laughs> brain. But I, I think Another thing we're looking at is a product of the kind of outsiderness of the detective, um, especially given its roots in the Romantic era. So you you get right back to the beginning. Dupin is smarter than all the um, all the detectives in Paris, and I I think 
I think one reason is because it's much less interesting for us to watch a well-adjusted insider do his job. We want, <laughs> right? We want our heroes to be on the outside of things. We want them to come in and save the day when the day doesn't really deserve to be saved, and and, uh, and to rescue the authorities who don't really know anything about <clears throat> anything. So would you say that they have gone maverick? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I would say. Maverick. I I, see, I blew that joke. I... <laughs> Either one works. Gone Maverick and Rogue, in fact. Yes. Simultaneously. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You're a loose cannon, detective. I'm taking you off the case. Maybe you're off your case, chief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how often does that scene get played out? Um, Not I, enough. I don't know. One of one of the one of the things that interested me about that question is is I think very often the you know and and I've heard this before uh, from you know just just friends neighbors whatever who something something happens you know some crime happens you know often something you know some kind of petty vandalism or petty theft and they'll say well we reported it to the police but nothing's ever going to happen like they're going to do anything about it you know this this kind of resignation like you said Nathan that that you know that the big bureaucracy doesn't really care it's just kind of there to make you think that something's being done but it's not but that's so, why i opened my detective agency david i charge 25 cents a day plus expenses and existential detective agency i've got this tough broad who's kind of my muscle and if bugs Manny comes around i know she'll take care of it yeah. Point is, I get results. <laughs> well, and it's usually because you noticed some like really, you know, kind of abstract nerdy science trivia that really has nothing to do whatsoever with the crime. I saw that he had a tan line alibi. on his wrist. <laughs> yeah. Or she was filing her fingernails after she got out of the shower, and everyone knows that's absurd. <laughs> Just to switch gears a little bit and uh, be maybe even more headily wonky than before. Um, Michael, you brought up Pynchon's Crying a Lot 49 um, as, as kind of a postmodern take on mystery. And, well, since it's also literary fiction, and so, you, and so you'll read it. Um, <laughs> Had to read it, in fact. Yeah, what's going on there? Because I, I never read it. Well, it's a, it's a countercultural classic, and it deals with this woman, Oedipa Moss, or Mass, I don't know how you pronounce it, M-A-A-S, and all of Pynchon's characters have silly names like that, if you didn't know. Anyway, Adipa discovers that she's been named the executor of her ex-boyfriend's estate, and he's died. So she's got to go down to Southern California and sort things out. Well, once she gets down there, she gets sidetracked by this organization called W-A-S-T-E. You're instructed not to say waste. It's W-A-S-T-E. And it's basically an underground post office. It ties together all the countercultural organizations because none of them are willing to use a government organization like the post office. So she's hmm. baffled and she investigates it. She ends up reading all this restoration drama and she drives all over California. And the big thing is that she never figures things out. And the novel can rightly be called postmodern, I think, because the point of the whole thing is that any meanings we discover are only tentative that we should in fact be satisfied with what post-structuralist theory uh, might call the play of meaning, shifting truth. So the development, I think, is not so much that this is a mystery that has no ending, because as I discussed, Poe's mystery of Marie Rouget doesn't have an ending. The development is that no ending can possibly be had. That not only is it not written in the story, 
there's there's no um th there's no solution in quote real life either so marie you get this feeling when you read marie rouget that the meaning is just over the next hill that it's forthcoming not so in lot 49 so it betrays a very uh different set of values and ideals than traditional detective fiction which after all is very interested in making sense of the universe it's interested in making the bad guys pay for their crimes there mm. aren't bad guys in lot 49 or not not mm. really and there, there's no there's no making sense of the universe it just is and you have to embrace that hmm. it, it reminds me of uh umberto echo's Foucault's pendulum um yes yeah which is uh, kind of a send-up of conspiracy literature but uh yeah and and yeah kind of I, I guess I, I guess sort of pointing out that the the human desire to to solve the mysteries and find the patterns that explain everything is uh, uh, can be dangerous <laughs> and can lead us to you know co to kind of live inside patterns that only exist in our own minds. At which point we put on tinfoil hats. Um, now I promised uh, we promised uh, Sam that we would bring up. Uh, the most popular detective fiction writer in the world ever, <laughs> which is Jessica Fletcher, uh, the the heroine of uh, the Murder She Wrote uh, television series, which I loved. And you get you guys said you'd never seen this. I've never seen it. Oh, I, I've so seen snippets of it. Okay. I'm I'm a little young. It was off the air by the time I was really old enough to watch television. I mean, okay. I, I I'm not saying that to put you guys down. It's just th the truth. Well, I think when I was a kid, it aired on like USA or TNT or something like that. Yeah, um, my my father-in-law sometimes watches it on a Hallmark Channel, I believe. Right, right. They're they're so cute because it's Angela Lansbury, and she's you know she's just bustling and full of energy and so sweet and she lives in this you know cute little town in Maine and she's got all her neighbors and she has her little bicycle that she rides around on but she you know because she's famous she a lot of times ends up you know meeting important people and things like that and wherever she goes somebody dies usually because uh, you know black gloved hands come from off screen with a knife <laughs> Or something like that. That's yeah, incredible. It, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it's 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 wonderful. But somehow, because she's a mystery novelist, she's good at solving mysteries in real life. So it's, I guess it's kind of meta. Well, um, she notices there's there there may be something there that wasn't there before. Right, right. Now, uh, even though that was kind of murder, she wrote gimmick uh the mystery writer who solves mysteries um now that that series was not the first one to the game um dorothy sayers who was herself a mystery writer had a character in her lord peter whimsies who was a mystery writer who would solve mysteries um so yeah Dor dorothy sayers uh did this with her character harriet vane but in real life uh, whenever Dorothy Sayers got asked, usually by journalists, what her opinion was of unsolved crimes or current court cases, things like that, she thought it was completely ludicrous that anyone would think that she had an, an opinion that would help. Um, now, she kind of explains this in uh, 
her her book, The Mind of the Maker, where she talks about the problem in the story of detection. Um, Nathan, uh, you were you you were reading this, I think. Um, yes. What's the difference between a problem in a mystery and a problem in real life? Well, before I answer that, I got to tell a quick Jessica Fletcher story. When Sam sent us that email, uh, I was racking my brains because I worked in public libraries for a decade. I've checked out a million mystery books to a million different people. I never remembered seeing a Jessica Fletcher novel. And I, I actually went and, you know, did a Google search for Jessica Fletcher before I realized, oh, I have been had. Uh, so anyway. Really? Congratulations, Sam Mulberry. Yes, yes, Sam. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you threw the fake bone and I chased after it like the dumbest dog on the block. So, um, <laughs> we'll get you anyway, back. Uh, you know, one of the things that's, I mean, great about this Dorothy Sayers book, uh, I've read about a quarter of it. I'm going to try to finish it this summer. Uh, but that she never, in the pages that I've read so far, mentions the name of Aristotle. Uh, and yet this is the smartest commentary on Aristotle's poetics I think I've ever read. Mm. And the very problem that she sees with murder mysteries, uh, again, she never mentions the name of the philosopher, uh, but is that they actually adhere to Aristotle's unities. Uh, mm. She says that, you know, in a murder mystery, you do have unity of action. Uh, there is a crime that is set up. Uh, there are no cir social circumstances. There are no... Uh, real histories to murder mysteries. There is simply a crime, uh, and when the crime is solved, it is over. There is no continuing uh, after story. Uh, and, you know, if you think about it, I mean, that is, by definition, unity of action. Uh, mm -hmm. That is, by definition, unity of time. And in most cases, that is, by definition, unity of place. And, you know, one of the things that Sayers notes uh, is that in real life, uh, there are complex human beings involved with any human action and that, you know, the mystery story's satisfaction is not that it re reflects the complexity of human life, uh, but that it does something like what Aristotle describes when he talks about mimesis. Uh, Aristotle talks about the story as reflecting certain relationships within human life. Uh, what Sayers notes is that, you know, these reflections are always partial reflections. They only give you a little bit. And the reason it works so well, the reason it's so compelling, and again, this is a point that Aristotle doesn't make, but Sayers picks up and runs with, uh, the reason it's so compelling to the reader is because that's about how much complexity we can handle in one sitting. <laughs> and, you know, that's why uh, compelling fiction, when it follows those unities, is compelling. Uh, it's because it gives us just enough reality uh, to bite off and to chew uh, so that we don't choke on it. Now, what, you know, Sayers is right to note is that this is not how life actually works. Uh, yeah. In life, we live in an immensely complex creation, uh, you know, put into place by an inscrutable creator. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> when people solve real-life problems, uh, it's not an entirely rational process, you know, to uh, try to remember the list she uses. And I don't have the book out of my bag right now, but she says people use things like intuition, divine revelation, and David, correct me if I get this wrong, jiggery pokery yes. uh, to solve actual real life problems. <laughs> and so, you know, she that's why that term? she no. does not find that term. So I'm not even going to go near it. I love it, though. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is a great phrase. Uh, but at any rate, you know, what she says is, you know, it is absurd to think that a partial and a digestible reflection of reality is going to be the same as reality. That's her basic point about the mystery story. Right. And that, and that it can be dangerous to think that problems in real life, not only problems of crime, problems of justice, but just general social problems can have that kind of single reachable rational solution that right. the that the detective uh, story presents. Right. And that once you reach it, it won't cause more problems in its wake. Right. Right. Um and of course, writing's mystery stories herself, she, re- she you know, she she knew this intimately. Um, the last book in her her Lord Peter Whimsy series, which was her most popular, um, it doesn't end with the solving of the crime. The crime is solved. The uh, and and then the crime it goes to court. The murderer goes to trial. Uh, Lord Peter Whimsy simultaneously is a witness for the prosecution and a witness for the defense and pays for the defense attorney because he feels guilty. Um, and then the, the last scene is him sitting up at night watching the clock as it reaches midnight and the man who committed the mystery, the mystery which was his source of amusement – because he gets because he enjoys solving mysteries uh the man who died for his amusement uh dies at midnight in the last scene of that book huh. um, and I think that was kind of her attempt to break out of the the way the mystery novel presents the problem uh as as finished when the crime is solved so uh, so she ends her mystery story with the last scene of dr Faustus i yeah pretty much. I was going to say she invented law and order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Dorothy Sayers doesn't get, I think, nearly as much love as she ought to. Well, Um, it's interesting. Chesterton's writing mysteries. Sayers is writing mysteries. Uh, Rumor has it that University of Georgia's own Michael Moran writes mysteries. I I think it's just something with Catholic intellectuals. Percy's first... First... uh, Fiction was a mystery. Walker Percy. It just came out. I haven't read it, but uh, it was a short story mystery. Huh. There's something about Catholic intellectuals and detective novels. Hmm. Um, well, Catholics are more comfortable with with uh, rationalism than Protestants are. I would I would say at least the the stripe of Protestant I am because of uh, because of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you if you name a guy, if you name Thomas Aquinas your official theologian and call him the angelic doctor, you kind of can't jettison rationalism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, Dorothy Sayers uh, isn't the only one who's noticed that uh, sometimes detective stories can create problems. Um, Michael, uh, this this is since, you know, you're you're kind of our TV buff. I thought this would be. so, something that you would have noticed. Um, police procedurals are are where mystery is at on TV these days, it seems. Um, so, what's the attraction of this of 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 procedurals? Um, not just police procedurals, but legal procedurals and medical procedurals and all that kind of stuff. Um, what what's the attraction there? And do they give us any other way of talking about mystery? 
I gotta say, I have uh, not seen a single episode of CSI, NCIS, Numbers, or any of those other detective shows I've seen. Maybe really? Two, maybe seen two episodes of Law & Order. I, oh, uh, man. I, I don't watch them. I, I like I love Monk, and I like Bones, and I like House, but that's um, that's about it. Uh, I, I would have to say with the procedural, if you're if you're looking for something in the actual procedural, it must be comforting to think that things are that easy. Because like on on Bones, and this is probably true of all those procedurals on on CBS as well, but the technology far outstrips anything that exists in reality. So one of the gals on Bones uses this ridiculous computer that tells her basically anything she wants to know. It's like magic. It really is like consulting an oracle. And, and a few weeks ago on a house, they were actually able to view a patient's dreams. So I think one of the attractions of the procedural is that it makes you feel better about technology. And it almost seems like we're moving from a, a group of detective fiction that kind of elevates the individual psyche to something that elevates the power of technology, which is a very bad development in the history of humanity, if you ask me. Yeah. Not that anybody did. Well, sure. I mean, and the king of all procedurals, I have to think, is NCIS, because you've actually got a triple procedural going on. Uh, you've got the field detective team, you've got the computer forensic team, and you've got the autopsy forensic team. Mm. And the Sherlock Holmes figure in each of those mini-casts, uh, those are the three characters that never abuse each other, but the three of them feel free to abuse all of the Watson figures in the cast. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, Michael's right. I mean, it is this, you know, although on that show, it is a combination of the power, the, the wonders of technology, because, you know, like Michael said, they have these wonderful toys uh, that apparently, you know, the FBI, CIA and, you know, everybody else doesn't actually have. Uh, but on the other hand, the three Holmes figures uh, who are interestingly, you know, a middle aged, hard boiled uh, detective, a, a a wonderfully eccentric and loquacious medical examiner, and a goth girl computer forensic scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the three of them are also super geniuses in their own right. They see things that nobody else can see. So it really is a combination of Holmes and technology that make that drives the plot of every episode of NCIS. Cyborg Sherlock Holmes. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Um, now the problem, and I, I you know, th this is something that I didn't realize until, okay, uh, full true confessions. I found this out on a cracked list. Um, is that things like CSI are actually causing causing problems in the way legal cases are tried these days because juries believe all that stuff is real. <laughs> and when absolute DNA positive ID is, is not part of state's evidence against, uh, against a defendant, uh -huh. oh, they'll, they'll acquit them. Wow. Gee, Regard Michael, why don't you like the masses of humanity? <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you trust democracy, Michael? I've well, this isn't democracy. With... This is this is the people trusting technology. Right. Well, I'm talking the about the democracy trust... of the uh, of the jury. Yeah, <laughs> but I've talked to nurses who say that you know they've had similar problems with house that people come in expecting that their ailment is going to be one of these super cases that they'll need to send to 
you know, their in-house house, you know, because it must be different from every other ailment they've ever seen at the hospital. Yeah. Well, every time it's... I have a sore throat, I uh, I picture the uh, room spinning like it does for the poor patients on that show, <laughs> and then waking up in a hospital in New Jersey. Right, and then they zoom into your throat and they see, you know, little existentialists mar- marching around in your mitochondria and... <laughs> Min- miniature John Paul Sartres. <laughs> is, that, is that what you've got in the place of midi-chlorians? <laughs> We go. Uh, we just got like three different shades of geek there. Yeah, just just to kind of you know slow down sharply because uh, we're we're running up against time now. Um, this is you know I thought I thought this would be fun because uh, we don't we don't often do it. But uh, last question: um, Have you gentlemen got any viewing or reading recommendations for our listeners in the mystery vein? I mean, what what have you read or seen that you think is worth recommending in this genre, Michael? Well, yeah, if you haven't seen Monk, you should really watch it. It's a sweet and funny show. It won a bunch of Emmys, but it, it seems to be kind of neglected or even hated by the hipster crowd for reasons I don't quite understand. The mysteries are are important on that show, as I as I mentioned, but the relationships and characters are still written really well, and it's moving, and it's a, it's a really good show. It ended um, last December, but the U- USA Network still shows episodes every week. And I also want to uh, recommend Kinky Friedman's Mysteries. Uh, Friedman was this bizarre country star in the 70s. His band was called the Texas Jew Boys. And he did songs <laughs> like, uh, I'm not making this up, he did songs like Get Your Biscuits in the Oven and Your Buns in the Bed, and uh, they, don't make Jesus, they Don't Make Jews Like Jesus Anymore. So you can see, pretty much see where his mind is. He also ran for governor of Texas a few years ago, by the way. Uh, anyway, he's been writing these comedic mystery novels for a while now, and they feature a central character named Kinky Friedman, and he's a country musician, so it's, uh, it's pretty meta. <laughs> the book I read is called uh, Road Kill, and it involves the mysterious disappearance of Willie Nelson. So uh, that's nice. an awful lot of fun if you're a fan of country music, and I am. And by the way, uh, just, to, just, just, just for the uh, sake of an anecdote, every time he sees Willie Nelson in that novel, he says that Willie is smoking a joint the size of... Um, Something getting progressively bigger. I think he says a submarine at one point. <laughs> nice. So if you're a if you're a country music fan and you like uh, funny mysteries, you should definitely read Kinky Friedman's book. <laughs> you, Nathan? I don't know how I'm going to top that, but uh, I'll just return to. I mean, the HBO series The Wire. It ran for five seasons. Uh, it is the best writing that I've seen on TV, and I think that you know a lot of the themes, a lot of the ideas that we've been running with uh, play out in that series in such interesting ways that it's just the most worthwhile television that I can recommend. You know, you've got multiple Sherlock Holmes types, you've got multiple Watson types, uh, you've got the local versus the bureaucracy. Uh, (laughs) It's just wonderful stuff. So, The Wire. Very cool. Um, Well, I recommend, uh, in terms of fiction, go read Father Brown, Chesterton's Father Brown stories. Read Dorothy Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey. And for the screen, uh, my favorite Sherlock Holmes adaptations are uh, they were made for TV and they star uh, a fellow by the name of Jeremy Brett. And it's as if someone just turned the story into a screenplay, cast it perfectly, and then let the cameras roll. They're really, really amazing stuff. Oh, and Sam Mulberry recommends Murder, She Wrote. 
<laughs> so, um, next week, what have we got going on? We are going to talk about Judas. Mm. And, you know, he, he is, you know, like I said, I'm writing a novel about Saul, so I'm interested in the other side of biblical stories. Uh, we're going to talk about the ultimate other side of the biblical story. Awesome. Well, um, thanks, listeners, for uh, downloading another Christian Humanist podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you want to uh, comment on uh, today's show, maybe steer us towards some mysteries that, that we've got to read or got to watch, um, you can comment on the show notes when they appear on our website. Our website is www.christianhumanist.org. Uh, or you can send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, but in the meanwhile, have grand weeks and hark to Martin Luther, who said, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>